One Christmas, when I was about nine years old, my parents gave me a bike. It was my first bike with gears. I couldn't believe it. Totally unexpected. I was really excited. And of course, I went straight out to ride my bike up and down the road. And this was back in the day when all the kids used to play out in in the street. And a group of boys gathered around uh, my bike and they started laughing at it. And they said it was rubbish. It's all right. I'm over it. Um, It was a lie, but I believed it. And I never looked at that bike in the same way again. Uh, Something that was so precious to me suddenly became far less valuable. Uh, uh, All my excitement was quashed. If we're not careful, a similar thing can happen to us when it comes to the gospel. Uh, Jesus and all that he offers is the most mind-blowingly wonderful gift that we could ever receive. As it says in verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. No human words, no feeling, no emotion, no song of praise, no expression of gratitude could ever capture the wonder of this phenomenal gift. And we receive it with joy, but then we go out into the world where the gift is not valued. In fact, it's laughed at and treated as rubbish. And if we're not careful, the world's attitude towards the gift can make it somehow seem less valuable. And then we gradually start to adopt the world's priorities and values. So if we pay too much attention to the world, we'll lose our gratitude, passion, and excitement for God's indescribable gift. And it seems that that is what happened to the Corinthians, or at least some of them. Originally, they received Paul's leadership and teaching with joy. But when Paul left them, they encountered some false Christian leaders who looked and sounded more impressive. They had a higher status in society. They were certainly wealthier than Paul because Paul had absolutely nothing. The Corinthians listened to the wrong voices, and they stopped valuing the thing that was truly valuable. All of a sudden, Paul seemed a rather pathetic figure. He was always suffering and being persecuted. Uh, He was poor. He made a meager living out of manual labor. He was a, um, a tent maker. He wasn't a very impressive public speaker. Some in the church began to despise Paul because they were viewing his leadership and his teaching through a worldly lens. But in so doing, they were also despising Christ, who gave up all the riches of heaven. For our sake, he became poor. He endured the most vile treatment and excruciating pain, and he died for our sins on a cross. Philippians 6 uh, 2, 6 to 8 captures it well. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross turns our notions of power, glory, and success upside down. Because on the the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and all the powers of evil. He died, and after three days, he rose to new life. And then uh, our reading from Philippians there, Uh, continues 
in verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the beauty of the gospel, and it is so far removed from man's way of doing things. In fact, later in 2 Corinthians, Paul quotes Jesus as saying, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. But some in the Corinthian church had rejected the beauty of the gospel and had returned to a worldly way of thinking. You cannot appreciate the wonder, majesty, and glory of the cross if you continue to be impressed by worldly power, riches, and status. In a nutshell, the Corinthians were despising Paul's cross-shaped way of life, and they were shriveling up spiritually as a result. Actually, when Paul wrote this letter, the Corinthians had already repented, but now they needed to recalibrate. They needed to get back on track. And their spiritual atrophy was most evident in their lack of generosity. At the time, the church in Jerusalem was in dire need. Uh, a, A famine had left them impoverished. And the Corinthian church, when they were listening to Paul, had pledged financial assistance. In fact, it was their generous offer of assistance that inspired the Macedonian churches to give generously. And here's what Paul says about the Macedonian churches in the previous chapter, chapter 8. He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. So the Macedonian church was considerably less wealthy than the Corinthian church. They'd been through a massive trial themselves, and yet they were more willing to give. In fact, they pleaded with Paul for the privilege. Research shows that Christians living in socially deprived area areas uh, tend to give more generously than Christians living in wealthy areas. The total amount given might be less, but it's a higher percentage of their disposable income. So this trend that Paul was describing uh, in this letter is still evident in 21st century Australia. Poor Christians tend to be more generous, and that's because materialism gets its claws into us. The more we have, the more we want. The wealthier we are, the tighter we hold on to that wealth. And the antidote to materialism is generosity. So the Macedonians were giving out of their want, and the Corinthians had so far failed to give out of their abundance. And Paul says to the Corinthians, look, this is going to be embarrassing. I've been telling the Macedonians how eager you are to give, and still you haven't done anything. And he says, you need to get this gift organized, because if any of the Macedonians come with me when I visit you and find you unprepared, it's going to bring shame on you and us. Have you ever turned up somewhere empty-handed, only to realize that you should have taken a gift? So let's say you're, you're turning up at someone's house for dinner, 
and there's some other people arriving at the same time and they've got chocolate and wine and flowers and you've got nothing. How would you feel? Be really awkward, wouldn't it? Uh, thankfully, Tissa would never allow that to happen. And so despite my absent-mindedness, uh, I've been spared that embarrassment. But how much more embarrassing and shameful for the well-off Corinthian church that had reneged on its promise to help the impoverished Jerusalem church to be confronted by members of the poor Macedonian church who had already given beyond their means. That's what Paul is getting at in the first part of this chapter. And for us, if we were to distill this down to a personal level, uh, the message is simple. Don't be that person who gives nothing or just small change when your brothers and sisters uh, might be given beyond their means, giving sacrificially. So there's a big difference between the Macedonians and the Corinthians, and it boils down to gratitude. The Corinthians had succumbed to a worldly way of thinking. They were bedazzled by the hype of false teachers who seemed more impressive. They were uh, seduced by the promise of uh, wealth and prosperity. They they were uh, lured by materialism. How can you be grateful to a crucified saviour who calls you to take up your cross and follow him if you're listening to the lies of those who would say that the way of the cross is foolishness. The Macedonians, on the other hand, were so grateful to God for his generous act of grace that, uh, 8 verse 2, they, in the midst of a, a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. As one commentator put it, God's grace towards us reproduces his graciousness within us. You see, it isn't just about the money. The church in Jerusalem was in desperate need of help. That need was pressing. It needed to be addressed urgently. But Paul is also concerned about the spiritual state of the Corinthians. You see, generosity is a very good gauge of gratitude. And gratitude is a a reflection of how well we've understood and received the good news of Jesus. As it says in verse 12, our generosity is an overflowing of thanks to God. Verse 6 says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, some prosperity gospel preachers would take this to mean the more money you give to the church, the more God is going to bless you in a material way. But if we're giving to increase our wealth, then we've completely misunderstood the gospel. But there's certainly an implication that God will supply uh, our needs. Verse 8 says this, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And then in verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So yes, God meets our needs, but the harvest is one of righteousness. Our needs are met so that we can continue with our good works and our generosity. If you sow sparingly, in other words, if you're stingy, then it's a sign that you're holding on to the world instead of holding on 
to the cross. And if that's the case, you can't expect to see much spiritual fruit in your life. If we want to grow as Christians, we need to be giving. It's not negotiable. It's an essential Christian discipline. Of course, generosity isn't just about our gift to the church. There are so many ways that we can be generous, and every area of our life should be characterized by generosity. But since this particular passage is about a gift to the church, we're going to start with that. Well, now for the question that's on everybody's lips. How much should I give? How much should I be giving? Well, verse 7 says this. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, we need to sit down with God and have that conversation. We need to pray about it. And for those of us who are married, we need to have that conversation with our spouse too. We, the, the, this is something that we should discuss and pray about together. I once had a conversation with a pastor who had quite a different view of this. Uh, and he's a great pastor. He's a very godly man. We just didn't uh, see eye to eye on this particular issue. And his view was that everybody, uh, every Christian, should give 10% of their income to the church because that's the tithe that was required of God's people in the Old Testament. And I've got two problems with that. Firstly, if you add up all the tithes and offerings uh, that were required of God's people in the Old Testament, it actually comes to closer to 25% of their income. But more importantly than that, for some families, if they gave 10% of their income, it would push them into financial hardship. To achieve that level of giving, they might have to give up all of life's luxuries, whatever they are, Netflix, the occasional Starbucks, coffee, meals out, trips to the beach, whatever it is. They might even have to scrimp on food, electricity, school clothes, the basics. Some families struggle with the basics before they've even given anything. And someone might say, well, giving is an act of faith and God promises to meet our needs. And that's true. And that's why I don't think any Christian is exempt from giving. But I think we've got to be very careful about being prescriptive about the amount. The flip side of the coin is that some families could give 10% of their income without sacrificing anything. They'd still be able to afford two holidays a year and eat out a couple of times a week and drive a fancy car and all the rest of it. So the point is 10% of one's income looks very different depending on which end of the socioeconomic spectrum one sits. So it's not about a benchmark amount. It's about principles. In fact, it's about our heart. Our giving is between us and God. What we've decided in our hearts to give. Our giving shouldn't be reluctant or under compulsion. It's not my job to twist your arm or guilt trip you. Rather, our giving should be cheerful. And it is only an appreciation of God's grace that can prompt us to give cheerfully. Finally, our giving should be generous and sacrificial. Giving an amount that we're not even going to notice will not change our hearts. So giving helps to build up, encourage, support, and sustain the church. In this case, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians, we're talking about the impoverished Jerusalem church. And when we give with the right motives, and that is a loving and grateful response to God, who has been gracious and generous towards us, when we give with the right motives, it can completely change our hearts and our lives. It's transformative. 
But our generosity has another effect, and we see it in verse 13. Our generosity will cause others to praise God. Now, I saw a really good example of this the other week, and I won't uh, name any names, but uh, a member of our church had a uh, an accident in the car. Someone bumped into her and did some damage to the car. She was without a car. So I said to her, what are you going to do without a car? And it transpired that someone in the church had already offered to lend her a car, and they were in the car on their way to go and collect it. And here's what she said. She said, oh, I love our wonderful church family. I love our wonderful church family. And I think that's an expression of gratitude, not just to the person who lent her the car, but to God whose family it is. Imagine showing that level of generosity to someone outside of the church. Wouldn't that be an amazing testimony to God's love and goodness and generosity? Your obedience in the area of generosity will not only bless others, it will cause them to praise God. Today's passage ends with these words, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so we can see we've come full circle in this amazing sequence of events. The grace of God that we receive through Jesus is the most amazing gift. We don't deserve it, but we've been brought back into a relationship with God, a relationship that lasts forever. Didn't cost us anything, but it cost Jesus everything. That is the amazing love and generosity of God. And the right response to such grace and generosity is one of love and gratitude. Whatever we've got going on in our lives, we can always find reasons to be grateful. Life itself is a gift, and God offers us eternal life in a renewed and restored creation. You can't get a better gift than that. And there's so much more to be grateful for. Try writing a list of everything that God has blessed you with and just watch that list grow. The more we think about it, the more we realize just how much God has done for us. I heard of uh, an elderly woman the other day. She goes to a church not far from here. And she often says that she was glad she was born blind because the first face she sees will be Jesus. So we are to be characterized by gratitude. And that gratitude is best expressed through our generosity towards others. And through our generosity, we are transformed and resourced to be even more of a blessing to others. And those we bless will end up praising God too. In short, God's grace leads to our gratitude. Our gratitude leads to our generosity. Our generosity leads to God's glory. And God's glory leads to other people praising God too and being grateful for his generosity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so generous towards us, giving up all the riches of heaven, coming into the earth in the person of Jesus Christ, suffering for us offering us the hope of a restored relationship and everlasting life with you. Father, we pray that our gratitude will overflow into our generosity towards others and that that generosity will lead to them praising God too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.